1: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode, I am joined by author Richard Hosen. One of the guys behind the book, The Jam, The Day I Was There. The story of the best band in the effing world, in the words of over 300 fans. Memories from the earliest shows at clubs and pubs around Woking and London, the UK, North American tours, through to their last ever gig in Brighton in December 1982. You'll also find incredible reads from him on The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, The Who, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and Jimi Hendrix, so we'll dig into some of that as well. Let's get into it. Richard Houghton, thanks for joining me.
0: Hello, nice to be on. Thank you very much. This is going
2: to be lovely. I'm looking forward to digging into your stories. As somebody who does a huge amount of research, I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from you here as well. So I'm looking forward to this, man.
0: Okay, great. Well, me too.
2: Now, I, some of these chats, I do kick off with wanting to understand when people discovered the music of Paul Weller. And I'm going to kick off with that because you've written about so many different bands and artists and stuff. You obviously... Love, love music. But how much of a connection do you have with Paul and his music? Were the jam a big band for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm 62 years old. So I was born in 1960. I suppose I discovered music as an early teenager when glam was the thing. You know, it was Slade, it was T Rex, it was Gary Glitter. I know we're not supposed to mention him anymore, but fact is, he was all over the TV, 72, 73, 74. And then punk came along. So I was 16 in 1976. Um, You know, I bought. The New Rose single that the Damned put out, which was the very first punk single ever released. It cost me 55 pence from Clark Records in Rushden in Northampton, where I grew up. And of course, the jam came along. And I bought most of the jam singles as and when they came out in pitch sleeves. You know, I've still got most of them. I've still got all of them that I bought at the time because I'd never sold any of my vinyl or given any of it away. And I was at uni. Uh, I think it was 1980 when the Jam came to play at Loughborough University, and I saw that tour. And you know, one of those I will never forget it moments was when they finished with a bomb in Water Street, and the pyrotechnics went off. So the whole show had just been green and white lights. There was nothing else, and the pyrotechnics at the end for a bomb in Water Street, the, the lighting rig was shaking. That was of I thought it was going to collapse, and. I had reason to speak to Rick Buckler a few weeks ago because I've just finished doing a book about stranglers. And obviously the the jam and the stranglers were both very active at the same time on the gig circuit in the late 70s. I mentioned the the pyrotechnics issue to Rick, and he said that was a common problem on that tour. They just overdid the explosives. (laughs) So
2: take me back to that mosh pit. Take me back to that gig. What are your memories, aside from the pyrotechnics, what are your memories about being in the crowd and being at the jam gig? Musically, what was it like as well?
0: Well, what I particularly remember before the gig was just I can't believe the jam are playing Loughborough University because Loughborough University had built a brand new student union building the year I started it was about a 900 capacity gig I think so it wasn't the biggest on the circuit and a band the size of the jam you'd have expected to have been playing either the bigger universities with the bigger capacity venues or indeed playing the likes of um, De Montfort Hall in Leicester which I the, know oh, they did play on other tours so them coming to Loughborough was quite a quite a deal really you know just as an aside to that I, I went to the the exhibition in liverpool a few years ago with all of paul's memorabilia and one of the documents that was in the in the exhibition was a tour diary for that year or the tour schedule and it actually had the loughborough the page was opened at the loughborough entry and it said no hotels were staying in the they the band decamped to leicester i think because <laughs> loughborough, 12 miles away it was such a small place really there was nowhere decent for the band to stay at.
2: And it's, I mean, at that point as well, it's like, the band are huge. This is sound effects time, going underground, going to number one, around that time, yeah?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah like I say, it was it was a big deal. I mean, I, I was at Loughborough University for three years. I saw bands like the Buzzcocks, but they were already sort of passé, really, by then. I saw 999, I saw Bad Manners. So you were kind of getting those, without wishing to be unkind, sort of second division bands playing, whereas the jam were clearly... You know, top of the class. And so I just remember be, hearing that the gig had been announced and thinking, Christ, how am I going to get tickets? Fortunately, being a student living on campus, you know, I could get to the Student Union box office and, and get tickets fairly quickly. But I know, you know, some of the, my fellow students missed out because they weren't out of bed early enough that morning to actually get them. And of course, this is all pre internet age when, you know, it wasn't a case of hovering over the, the screen with a mouse in your hand. You actually had to physically go there and rock up to get your tickets. uh.
2: Yeah, that's one of the things I've loved on the podcast, actually, people talking about, you just forget like the whole kind of sending off your check and a stamped address envelope and hoping you'll get your tickets back. And those, those, I mean, so much has changed. A lot of things for the better, but some stuff not so. But yeah, it's it's just a completely different world, wasn't it, in terms of gig going?
0: Yeah, and I I think lots of artists experienced this and some have taken different measures to, to deal with it. But the problem with the internet is forget all the touting, forget the massive overpricing and the secondary market thing. It's the fact that so many tickets... Are bought by people who actually aren't real fans so you can have the suits you can have the corporates you can have what roy would called the prawn cocktail brigade at a gig they might have paid a couple of hundred quid for the ticket but they're not necessarily there because they love the music they're there so they can show off to their friends and take selfies and all the rest of it which of course the music fans the the, the passionate gig goers get frustrated by because you go to a gig and you've got somebody stood next to you who's chatting away to their mate or Sending pictures to everybody else to show that they're there rather than being into the music. Pre internet, you had got out of bed early. You'd slept, you possibly queued overnight, as I did for a couple of gigs in my youth, because you were that desperate to get tickets. So you were there because you wanted to see the band. And that was the yeah. reason you bought a ticket.
2: And actually, when you're in the gig, you're in the moment because there were no mobile phones. People weren't looking through screens. I, I was at a gig the other day and the guy next to me was doing his emails.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Like, really? I'd, really? It drives me nuts. I mean, I, I have to say, I don't like going to sit down gigs anymore for that very reason because if you've got somebody next to you, even if they're just quietly looking at their emails, it's very distracting. Yeah. At least at a stand-up gig, generally you can sort of push to the front and get in the mosh pit where people don't tend to be looking at Facebook.
2: That's my position of choice always as well for gigs. Of course, I if they
0: are looking at Facebook, you can just knock the phone out of your hand. <laughs>
2: Now, how did you get onto this career as kind of writing and journalism and that love of the written word? Was that something that's come more recently in life? Or was that something that was always an early passion?
0: Uh, no, I always wanted to write. And, you know, I used to write short stories as a kid. And maybe anybody who had, had this sort of aspiration to, to write a novel, I'd be trying to start a novel, occasionally sent stuff off to a publisher. It always got sent back, clearly having not been read. But you know, They'd held on to it for six months before they sent it back. Back in the 70s and in the, in, in the dark ages in publishing terms, that's what you had to do. And the, the advice was send your manuscript to one publisher. Don't send it to lots of them because they won't like it if you do that. And the whole world has been obliterated. And this is an area where the internet has really made Things better because you and I could write a book between us, and it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. We can publish it via Kindle or whatever. It could be out next week if we got it together in time.
2: That's a lot of pressure, Richard. We've not, we only just met. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I mean, the simple fact is, anybody can publish a book now. Whether it's any good is another matter. Whether or not you can sell it is another matter entirely because that, of course, is the downside as it is with people recording their own music, you might record the greatest song ever in your bedroom, but actually getting people to hear it is is the challenge and getting it to the DJ's attention or the influencer's attention or whoever it is who's making those decisions and gives publicity to things these days is, is the big problem.
2: Yeah, that discovery Please. piece is really hard now, isn't it? If you're a new music artist, I don't, it's very different to how it was back in the jam that we're talking about. You know, it's a completely different world in terms of making music and trying to find an audience.
0: Obviously, there are lots of stories of very talented artists not making it even back in the old days. I mean, the the most famous example, I suppose, is there are people who still claim that the Beatles weren't the best band on Merseyside in the 1960s.
2: Incredible. Right. So I want to talk about this idea of these books that you produce. And when we talk about this format, the People's Histories, as you call them, I mean, some amazing bands that you've kind of dug into. So the likes of Thin Lizzy, Queen, Cream Rush, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles you just mentioned, and so many more. Where did that idea first come about, that kind of idea of People's Histories?
0: Well, my favourite band of all time is the Rolling Stones. You know, di- rock dinosaurs they may be but you know I I became a Stones fan when I was a teenager and over the years I've seen them a few times now but I've also collected books about the Stones and I've got about 200 different books. I mean there are a lot of books about the jam on Paul Weller now but I don't think we've quite reached <laughs> 200 part. That's probably about four or
2: five bookshelves on its own.
0: <laughs> yeah and um so I went to see the Stones in Stockholm in 2014 with my son Mick Jagger I think had was 71 or was turning 71 that month. And they'd already done 50 years. They'd passed their 50 year anniversary. But it occurred to me that there was Mick 70 plus up on stage. And there would have been people who'd been to see him when they were starting out 50 plus years before. And then I thought about all the books that I'd read about the Stones. And they're either by members of the band, such as Keith Richards has written his own autobiography, Bill Wyman's written his own autobiography and such like, or they are stories of about the band written by journalists or people in the inner circle. And then increasingly, I'll buy a book about the Stones and there's no new material in it because it's old stories rehashed because they've been gone over, their career's been you know, disinterred so many times. But then I thought, actually, nobody's ever told the story from the fans' point of view. And there must be people in the audience in Stockholm that night who perhaps were there when they first toured Sweden. And then it occurred to me actually that would be a good way to try and sort of explore the Stones story. So, what I did was write to local newspapers in the UK and say, 50 years ago, the Stones were playing your town. So, it was if it was Watford, you know, I'd write to the Watford Evening Gazette or whatever the local newspaper there is and say, you know, the Stones were playing the Watford gaumont 50 years ago this month. Would you um, be interested in running a piece on this and see if we could get some people to come forward and tell their stories? Quite a few newspapers offered to run a feature. A lot of them said, well, we won't do that, but we'll print your story as a letter and we'll include your email address so that people can share their memories with you. And as a process of doing that, I collected about 450 memories of seeing the Stones in the 60s with Brian Jones in the lineup and put together a book. And obviously back in 1962, 63, 64, when the Stones were touring heavily in the UK, well, there was no pop radio. There was no Radio 1 until 1967. Obviously there was no internet and what the Stones did, what the Who did, what the Kinks did. Not so much the Beatles, because they were a bit more planned in their activity and obviously were focusing on America as well. But bands like the Stones and the Who gigged six or seven nights a week because that's the only way you got your music heard because so little pop music was played on, on the radio. There was, mm. apart from the Pirates, there was no commercial radio or other alternatives really to the BBC who played little or no pop music. So you went out and gigged. And sometimes you knew where you were going to be playing that evening, and sometimes you didn't because your manager got the call that said such and such a pulled out. Can you play in Carlisle tonight, or can you be in Dumfries tomorrow evening? So the band would pile into the van and off they went.
2: Brilliant. So you're collecting all these stories from fans who have been there in the gigs, and, and then they're emailing them through, and then you're kind of emailing them and- or
0: writing to me, or you know, sometimes they have a phone number. I bring them up for a chat. In almost every instance, they are they are memories that have not been recorded elsewhere because they've only told that story to their family or told their mates down the pub, or they wrote it in their diary 50 odd years ago and forgot all about it until they saw my letter in the newspaper and thought, I was at that concert. So I did it for the Stones. Lots of people in telling me their Stones memories said, oh, I saw the Beatles." as well, I've got to tell you about that. So without really trying, I had you know, the beginnings of a book about the Beatles once I'd finished the Stones book. So I did a book on the Beatles. And then I thought, well, who else is there in the sixties who I could write about? And The Who were the next obvious band. Mm -hmm. Again, because they were prodigious in their gigging, doing the six or seven nights a week, because they're such characters, you know, Mooney, Keith Moon, the drummer, is is legendary, obviously in rock circles, and there were lots of tales about him. And that was a really interesting book to do, because although the, The Who's gigging history has been pretty well chronicled. I found, I think, three different concerts that had never been recorded before and what didn't appear in any previous publications about The Who. And in one of them, it was a gig that uh, they played at the Locarno Ballroom in Stevenage. And this woman said, oh yeah, I saw them at the Locarno in Stevenage. And she gave me a date. And I said, yeah, they did play there, but you got the date wrong because they actually played on such and such a date. She said, no, 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 no. I saw them there two weeks before. And she sent me a photocopy of a diary. So they actually did play the same place a fortnight apart. Right. That first gig had never been recorded anywhere. So that was really nice. And there was a, another concert uh, when in Shropshire at the town hall where three different people told me they'd seen them there although none of them could agree on what date it was either.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so when you're picking the, the bands you mentioned those three but more came and Led Zepp and Black Sabbath the Smiths how much of you has to be a fan to be invested in the stories that are coming back to you or actually are there some of those some of those bands not really your cup of tea anyway?
0: All the ones you've mentioned I've done because I'm, I'm a fan of the band but I've also done books where I've been commissioned where, where the publisher said to me can you do a a book about this band for us. So I did a book on Simple Minds, which was authorised by the band. I've just done a book on Jethro Tull, which was authorised by the band. The Stranglers book was authorised by the band. I saw The Stranglers three or four times in the 70s, so I am a fan of The Stranglers But. Jethro Tull I could not hand on heart have named more than one song of theirs before I started on the book but that doesn't really matter in a sense because because what you're trying to do is reach out to the fans who've got those memories who are passionate and whether it's Jethro Tull whether it's Simple Minds whether it's Westlife I suppose you know there'll be a core of hardcore committed fans who have seen them once or possibly more than once who've got stories to tell and sometimes it's about the band and the band are the, the core of the stories. sometimes it's actually more about themselves and it's how music has touched them their life
2: you mentioned that discovery piece and like how it how challenging it is to find an audience for authors and musicians these days but you've got that audience there already because you've got the fans of those bands who are going to lap up this stuff
0: you hope that not everybody does but you hope that quite a proportion of people who have sent you a story or you've interviewed will buy the book because they're in it what i try and do when i put a book together is actually well obviously quite often i always have to do some polishing of a story sometimes it's more than just a polish it's a complete rewrite I said to my wife at the beginning of this oh it's just a cut and paste job words which have come back to haunt me because every book takes <laughs> Yeah <ever>. yeah <laughs> and it's the famous um it's like the columbo thing you know it's one more question and then they tell you the the headline right at the end of the interview so when I did the book about the beatles a lady told me about going to see them playing at a work social club in Birmingham. This was before they were famous, when they were just doing a few gigs around England. And they met John and Paul outside after the gig. And that John and Paul had a mattress in the back of the van, and John Lennon invited this girl to get in the back of the van with her, which um, she declined <laughs> to do. But that was right at the end of her story. Oh, so, <laughs> What? Far more interesting than the, what she told me about going to the gig and... Yeah. What you bought at the bar and uh, what comes <laughs> <you about. laughs>
2: And that's never, I don't think we've heard the stories of the mattress in the back of the Beatles fan before, have we though? <laughs> so let's the jam. Here we are, the jam the day I was there. This was. Well, I'm trying to remember what year this was. This was 2019, so this is just pre-COVID yeah. you published this, right? Yeah. You eventually land on the jam. We mentioned the, uh-huh. the, lo- the love of the band and stuff. So how did you approach that? How did you go about that? Local press and putting things in local newspapers isn't really a thing these days still, is it? I don't
0: know. It still works. One of the sad facts is that that local newspapers, as they existed five years ago, isn't the same anymore, because more and more there's consolidation within the sector. You might have a paper that was produced every day, now only comes out once a week, and it maybe covers a wider geographic area. And I suspect the reality is we're not that many years away from local newspapers disappearing altogether and it all being online. There is still that online presence, so you could write to a local newspaper. I've I've written written to one just yesterday, and they've then put the story online so it's appeared straight away rather than appearing in next week's Gazette or whatever it might be. So that mechanism is still there. But yes, Facebook is, is... or the other social media, Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of it is an easier way of reaching out to people, particularly if you've got the endorsement of the band. Now, in this instance, I don't think we did have, but Rick got involved. Rick ended up signing the first 500 copies, I think, when we, when we published the book about the jam.
2: And writing the foreword as well in the book.
0: Yeah, because he knows... Neil, the publisher of the, of the book, so um, they're old mates from from years gone by. From
2: reading it, and I guess you know, from doing the podcast as well, that really floods through is is the fans' love of this band, but how young they were. And I don't know if that's true of all the other books. Is it? We're talking about people like you know, the amount of kids who are like, I was 12, 13, sharing their memories is remarkable.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, that really struck me about the Jam book, and I don't know what it is about the Jam that connected with that age group particularly. Maybe it was just that because the jam were very young and fresh face. And I'm not, I'm not sure how old Paul was when the jam broke big.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not that many years older than, I think he was like 1920, something like that, in the like 77, 78.
0: Yeah, but clearly he didn't give off that superstar, or uh, it was a deliberate, we could be down in the crowd with you, you could be up here kind of thing. Other bands have managed that, look at us, but actually we could be down there with you kind of thing. And that's what forms a connection, I think, between the audience and the people on the stage. So I think that might have been part of it. But yeah, also the fact that obviously they'd let people in for sound checks and to chat to people, there was no hiding behind the, the velvet rope and saying you know we, we don't want to talk to these people mm. that the accessibility that the band provided to fans were part of it and paul's dad famously letting people in for nothing and people who hadn't got a ticket would still turn up and somehow get getting to see the shows and that then forming that camaraderie that sort of bond that sense of a gang you know whether you are a jam fan you met another jam fan you know there was already a, a connection between the two of you which you could talk about the jam you could talk about the kind of stuff that affected you the lyrics clearly spoke to an audience and when you went to a jam gig you know you weren't suddenly disabused what paul said in his songs wasn't something that he just said he, act- he actually lived it and the you know the band themselves lived it and they were nice people who would talk to the fans make time for the fans give them autographs etc cetera, etc cetera.
2: the other thing that i mean this comes of starts right from the early days so pre-polydor record contracts and and then we go right through to the very I was going to say, bitter end, Um, but to the to the very, or maybe a little bit, but certainly to the end. Yeah, we're, so we're right there. And, and all the way through, you uncover clearly a really special band, like they've mentioned, some really special connections with fans as well. But the fact that the stories start right from that, those early days. I mean, I was going to mention Nikki Wellers right at the beginning as well. But yeah, we've got like 15 year old kids who are seeing them. Where the Greyhound, like all those early, early gigs that pre Polydor record deal um, and people's memories of those times from that band, which the fascinating thing about that is they're not known. They're probably not getting airplay on radio at that time. It's just the connection with the band is, is stuck in people's memories from probably, right, gigs they were.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. going
2: to every night of the week and seeing different bands but for some reason the jam really really stuck in their memory and some of them are so eloquent Like the amount of detail they're remembering from like I say from a band who hadn't even signed a record deal at that point
0: I suppose what's really striking is the fact that people are still so passionate about the jam people are still I think very very fondly of those times and some of that is about the fact obviously those people are now in their mid to late 50s or possibly a bit older and they're looking back at what for most of us is a golden age you know growing up being a teenager discovering music discovering the opposite sex or the same sex depending on what you're into and um Just when you're getting older and the world's not quite the same, you may be a bit more disillusioned. Be able to look back at the great times you had, the great music you listened to, the relationships you had. You know, you've got a different perspective on things, but people, I think, hang on to that and look back at it. I mean, sometimes less fondly, but you're able to put things in perspective. You know, maybe you had a job you didn't like, or you lost the job, or you had a relationship that didn't work out, or relationships with parents, whatever it might be. But the music's a constant throughout your life. And that thing about, you know, you hear a record, it takes straight back to a particular time in your life and it'll be different for everybody. And that's what the jam seems to encapsulate for a lot of people that if you know, they can hear a record, they remember where they were when they bought it, when they first heard it on the radio or when they saw them in concert.
2: The level of detail, the colour that they're painting in these emails, these messages to you, these phone conversations or whatever. Like they're, they're back there, aren't they? They're back there at the gigs. They're back there with the headphones on in the bedroom, listening to the records or whatever. It's it's remarkable. Like the amount of colour in their stories is incredible.
0: For me, that is part of what it's about. It, you know, it's a book about the jam, but actually it's 400 plus people's lives in a couple of paragraphs. It's not a Pulitzer Prize winner that you're going to read from cover to cover. Somebody described one of my books as a toilet book but they meant it in the nicest possible way you can pick it up <laughs> yeah, read yeah. a couple of pages and put it down again. yeah that's so, true I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah.
2: I'll, I'll yeah. take that as a compliment yeah no that's absolutely right you're, you're right you can dip in that way here's a couple I'm going to pick out right so I was there Nikki Weller age 15 so this was the 100 Club 11th of September 1977 in London uh, she says it was my 15th birthday it wasn't like it is today you're not allowed to have hardly anybody in there are you there was only a room for 300 people and there must have been a, about a thousand people in there it was bonkers there had no air conditioning at the hundred club there was nothing like that then it was just wall-to-wall people hanging off of everything i remember sweat dripping down the walls absolutely disgusting <laughs> and that was nicky as it says a teenager her 15th birthday but clear as day remembering that yeah. you know, is, is really yeah. special and um, now let's talk about neil so you created this book with neil i don't know he's, he's the publisher as well right
0: that's right yeah so the first book i did was about the stones oh, i did with a a small publisher who are no longer in existence. They then introduced me to a company called Red Planet, who published the Stones book I did, republished it, and then they did The Beatles and The Who. They then split into two companies and Neil was part of the new company, the Staying Music Books. So I'd already got a relationship with Neil and he said, let's do a book on the jam because he'd got the connection with Rick. Him and Rick were already pulling stories together and then he brought me in to sort of finish the job off, basically.
2: And Neil's background was what? He was a musician at one point, I think. He was a radio DJ in the, in the North as well, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah. He's done music PR. you know, He's in a band called The Cheaters who never quite got there. He is playing music again now. He's uh, he's picked up his guitar and has been working with Clive Gregson, who some people will know because he's uh, been around for a good few years and worked with just about everybody i think but yeah neil runs a, a website called this day in music which is slightly different from this this day in music books which is the publishing company and has built that up from scratch over the last few years so uh, it, produce provides a daily update on big events in music history and, and neil's got connections from working in the business you know he knows lots of people that's how he knew rick
2: some of the other characters you get so it's not just fans it's people behind some of the records behind the record labels of Polydor. so dennis monday who's been on the podcast and um, vic coppersmith heaven is in the book who is um famously obviously the jam engineer studio engineer
0: i think that was a story that rick got for us you know so neil and rick talked to him and got the information out of him Yeah.
2: So he said, yeah, we tried recording the Eaton Rifles once during the All Mod p- Cons period and it just didn't work. And then we kept going back to record it. And uh, this was a Townhouse during the time we were finishing off All Mod Cons. Um, I was working there on some other records at the Townhouse. Really liked the recording environment there, so I introduced the jam to that studio. And I thought we could achieve a much more exciting sound there. And as he digs in, they talk about, well, yeah, recording the Eaton Rifles three times. As you dig into the fan stories, you're also getting a bit of an insight into kind of actually the makeup of the band and how they created the music, which ultimately it all comes back to, right? I love those angles, was that always the approach you wanted to kind of get the stories, not just the fans, but people involved too?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, so a couple of the authorised books I've done, for example, the done a book on orchestral nerves in the dark. Andy McCluskey, the lead singer, gave me four interviews. And there was quite there's quite a lot of Andy's commentary in the book. We almost got to book up, it will be actually Andy. It's not your autobiography. <laughs> you, you know, we, we want to yeah. strike a balance. <laughs> but, you know, he was very helpful, very forthcoming. And he's got a load of stories because, again, when you've been in the business for 35, 40 years, you've met just about everybody. You've, if you've gigged extensively, you've got loads of tales. But it's trying to strike a balance between the band and the people in the band's orbit and the fans. Because otherwise, if, if it's all about the management and the band and session musicians they've worked with or producers they've worked with or people they know in the biz, it ends up not being the fan history that it was meant to be. So you want a bit of both to give the balance, really, especially if there's a contrast. Sometimes fans remember it one way and the people in the band or associated with the band remember it quite differently. And that's part of the charm as well. Or you might get Or more fans who are at the same gig, and they've got a particular memory that Paul was wearing a white shirt or Paul was wearing a yellow shirt. And if you can put the two together, you can see actually who's right here.
2: He was topless the whole gig. Um, (laughs) Russell Hastings is in the podcast, has been on the podcast and is in the book as well. So, from the jam, the amount of times that he'd seen the band, and this comes through quite a lot. Like, the a lot of the the fans were not just one off, this wasn't just a one off experience that he remembered. Like, the amount of people who went to gig gig after gig after gig after gig of the jam, and Russell obviously now is Paul Weller, effectively. Uh-huh. From the jam, you know, getting to perform those songs, but hearing his memories of just just being a fan and just going to loads of gigs,
0: yeah, that, and that thing about people going from gig to gig. I get as we were talking about earlier, sometimes they went even though they didn't have a ticket. Sometimes they didn't know how they were going to get to the next gig. Maybe they'd hitch a ride with a friend, or they'd met somebody at the gig who said they'll give them a, a floor to kip on and uh, a lift to the next place or whatever. I'm not sure that would happen the same anymore. And sometimes you think, yeah, great, i I you totally get that and how it was. And sometimes I think it just sounds like another age, Mm. almost stepping back in history sometimes the way things were. And it's that camaraderie for me that we are all in it together here. You know, you're a jam fan. I'm a jam fan. We don't have to discuss anything else. I know that you're on the same page as me. You know, we've got the same, we share the same values. We like the same band. We're both good guys, basically.
2: And even that those connections stay now. So even from doing this podcast, I've met quite a few people who um, become friendly and friends with uh, quite a few people who who love Weller. They go to Weller gigs, lots of Weller gigs and stuff. And um, when I'm going to gigs now, we're meeting up, you know. And and for them, that's been right, literally from these days, from the Jam days right through to now. That's the thing they do. So you you go, that's lovely. That's you know the the connections and the camaraderie and that that gang mentality is still in play. And they're in the 60s, you know. No,
0: and it's true of other bands. All I mean, talking about the Stones earlier. I mean, I don't, but I know Stones fans who fly in from all over the world to go to a gig, whether it's at Wembley Stadium or Rio de Janeiro or whatever, you know, and they've got, uh, particularly with the internet and the ability to communicate with people, whether it's by Zoom or email or whatever, stay in touch with each other and organize pre-gig parties and post-gig parties. And sometimes the the gig itself is almost ancillary. It's an excuse Mm. to get together and have a few drinks and have a good time and, yeah, meet up with people who were introduced to each other by the band they love, but have now become friends as well, which is great. You know, I think it's fantastic. Any sense of community like that has got to be a good thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. The thing about the jam as well is, and I mentioned this book takes you right through from the, the very, very early days, right through to that end. As we get to the end, obviously that was a brutal... Shock for so many people, the announcement of this is the end of the jam. As you read it through, it's celebratory as at the beginning, you know, people are loving the band. We're kind of experiencing this as, as young people. But towards the end, the heartbreak that comes through from fans and and their memories of, of this is it. This is done from those, then those last gigs that end tour. You have a bit of a tear in your eye when you're hearing that, reading those stories, man.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think that's part of the power of the book, really, the poignancy of it. I mean, some of the other bands I've written about like Cream, for example. Cream were in existence from July 1966 to November 68. And okay, they did briefly reform in 2005 with the three or four gigs. But essentially, they were only in existence for two and a half years. And when they broke up, everybody in the 60s thought they were the best band after the Beatles. And for some people, nobody else has come near. And it's the fact that they only existed for a brief period of time, and then were gone, that I think is part of the reason why those memories are so clearly held by people, because they didn't carry on and either write more material or deteriorate in terms of their performance, etc. So the memories of them are preserved in aspic in a sense but i mean that in a positive sense rather than you know mm. preserved and static and that's true of the jam too you know if the, if the jam had carried on and we're still playing now then would it be the same if, if the three guys were up there older grayer i'm sure paul would still be a smartly dressed but you know it, would, it wouldn't be the same and the same is true of the smiths you know notwithstanding what you might think about morrissey and things he said Post the Smiths, people are passionate about the Smiths because they only existed for a short period of time. And those memories are linked to a point in those people's lives when they were teenagers or early 20s or whatever. And it's the past, very clearly the past, and it's perfect because of that nobody can spoil all those memories
2: yeah and that's Paul, and then every time Paul was asked about all well, the jam reform whatever it's like and I think now it's got to the point where people are, don't ask him that so much anymore because it's like it's preserved it's like that legacy is absolutely there it's set and set, and they're not going to destroy that they're not going to play with that mess with that Um oh. whereas other bands like you say have dipped back in and reformed or tried to, it's like they've totally left the jam there's been nothing since so what's next so have you thought about any other Weller? So obviously we have the Star Council, the iteration there. I don't know if you were a fan. We should ask that. Um, and then Paul Weller solo, which has been over thirty years now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to you know talking about books, Neil Kossar at the day Music books, has published several Weller-related books since. You know, Andy did a book of photographs, for example, and the demand is still there. So from Neil's point of view, the market is there. Paul Weller fans buy books, so as a publisher, he's going to be interested. So if any of your listeners, you know, have, have got a book about the jam or Paul or the Style Council that they've been working on or an idea, get in touch because who knows. From a personal point of view, if, would I do when I was there about Paul Weller? Well, yes, I would, because, you know, the fact that people are interested and passionate, if people are passionate, they'll write about it. If they went to see somebody or listen to their music and weren't that bothered, they're not going to be inclined to sit at the keyboard and bash out a few paragraphs or ring me up for a chat. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's it, you've got to be a passionate fan to um better write about something.
2: Would this same connection be there for Coldplay? Would you get the same type of content from a band like that or from Ed Sheeran, who my kids play 24-7, you know?
0: Personally, I don't think you get as interesting stories. But, you know, going back to the early days of the jam or Cream or The Who, where, you know, the band rocked up in a transit, And if you got there early, you might end up helping them load their gear in or change them before they started their sound check or whatever. So much of it now is you can't get past security. You need a a laminate to get in the door, et cetera, et cetera. So just don't see there's the same level of human interaction with the the band that used to be. But maybe it's a different kind of book. I was fat at home in my bedroom and I was streaming Ed Sheeran, (laughs) and it was the most beautiful moment in my life. Who knows?
2: (laughs) You've been talking to my eight-year-old, Henry. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next from your point of view? What are you working on at the minute?
0: Two books coming out this year. Um, Just announcing today, in the next few minutes, actually, a book about the wedding present, who uh, an indie band you may have heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been around for more than 35 years. I've only graced the top 10 once, and that was for one week, before that single drops out of the top 10. But have a, you know, a hardcore fan base. And I did a book with their lead singer, David Gedge, six years ago. And we're just now doing a follow-up, which is where fans write about their favourite song by The Wedding Present and why it's their favourite song, what it means to them. And that would be a great book to do about the jam. What's your favourite jam song and why is it? You know, why, why is that particular song a good one? It might be because you just like the sound of it the mm. guitars or the drums, or it might be because it reminds you of an episode in your life, it reminds you of a relationship that blossomed or didn't blossom, or it reminds you of the day you quit your job and went and did something more interesting kind of thing. So that's what the Wedding Present book is. It's people's memories of songs and why they mean that much to them. And then the other book I'm working on, which is coming out in June, is a book about the faces, which is the band that Rod Stewart... And Ronnie Wood were in before they went off to be a megastar in their own right, with either Rod as a solo artist or Ronnie Wood with the Stones, of course. And the thing about the Faces is they were a merger of the remnants of the Small Faces, you know, the the famous mod band. And Rod and Ronnie left, were kicked out of the Jeff Beck group. Although the Jeff Beck group were doing really big business in the US between nineteen sixty eight and nineteen sixty nine. Jeff decided he wanted to do something different. And uh, so they all wound up in the faces who were together for six years and like the jam were a much missed live act who were famous for liking a drink and uh, liking to share it with the audience as well. So and a a band I never saw because I I was just a little bit too young. By the time I was aware who they were, they'd split up, reliving those memories vicariously by putting together memories of them. Yeah, Ronnie Lane sadly died as a result of multiple sclerosis and, and that affected the end of his career and, you know, last parts of his life. And then Mackie and McClagan died a few years ago of a stroke as well. So,
2: And how long does it take you on one of these journeys when you start that kind of idea and you, you start getting into it? It's not a copy and paste job, right? There's a lot of work involved in right, right. this. I, I can see that.
0: Uh, it probably takes a year. I mean, I've, I've always got more than one project on the go, hence the fact that I'm you know, telling you about two books that are coming up, and then I've got another one on the back burner, so to speak. I always talk about it as though I've got a stove with different pans on there, and each pan is actually a book. So there might be one that's almost ready. There might be one where I've got to do a lot more research. There might be one where I've just got the germ of the idea and I need to get a bit more material together. And with every book, it's is there actually an interest in it? Are there enough people out there who saw this band who really want to talk about it? Sometimes a book takes a long time to come to fruition. The Faces book is actually taking the best part six years to put together. Cause even though I wanted to do it, I've had interest from different publishers. Oh yeah, we'll do it. And then they back away. And then I was talking to a guy who's got an extensive collection of faces memorabilia and was going to provide me with lots of posters and it was going to be a really lavish coffee table kind of book. And then he changed his mind because he thinks he might want to do something else with his material. So I just sort of sod it, I'm going to put it out through my own company. So that's what I'm doing this year because I've been waiting for other people. And sadly, one of the realities is, particularly with a band with an older audience, if you collect the memories from people who are in their 70s and then do, don't do do anything with them for two or three years, some of those people aren't going to be around to see your book, actually, at the bookshelves because they're no longer with us. There's an element of a moment in time where it's the right time to do this book because people are around to tell their stories and share those memories they won't be here in 5, 10, 20 years time
2: I hey, know this has been so fascinating hearing about not just the stories within the book and we'll put the link in the show notes and people can read it all for themselves no, no I don't want to give too many spoilers away but hearing the process and how you kind of pull it together and your memories and love of that band as well is has been really special so thank you for that I have two questions for you before you go so you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life it can be the Jam the Style Council or Solo what are you going I go with
0: i think i go with english rose i just love that i just love the the background noise on that and it was so different from most of what the jam put out and it just stood out for me i mean i love you know i love, loved all the singles and uh, i've got all the albums they did but um i just love the way that sounds and uh, i think it's a perfect moment it's a beautiful song and i always think it's about you know the more prolific more talented songwriters we've got I just just if i could have just written one song There's Paul he's written all these fantastic songs Mm -hmm. and just the fact that he can write songs brilliant as that and it's just sort of part of what he's done. You know, if, if he'd just written that one song and that was the only song he'd ever written, that would be fantastic in
2: itself. Right, Final question. So your dog sounds like he needs a walk. Final question. <laughs> Purpose of this podcast is to dig into people's memories of the jam, the Star Council, Paul Weller solo, their love of the band, and people connections to the band, band members, family members, fans, authors like yourself, journalists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really, I'll be honest, the reason I started it was for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret, giving up the radio career, Never got to interview Weller. So if it happens off the back of this podcast, what should I ask him?
0: Well, I'd be interested to know what is the one question you're tired of hearing from interviewers other than are the jam going to reform?
2: So what's the number two? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I hope I wouldn't have asked you earlier on in the conversation with him. (laughs) That would be awkward. (laughs) I wonder what it is. I wonder what that would be why that's probably it you know why did you split the band yeah 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 hey richard this has been so lovely um thank you so much do share details of the books the new books when they come out and stuff and we'll we'll share those on our social media channels as well but thanks so much for your
0: time man i really appreciate it okay thank you very much It's been great
2: fun my thanks once again to richard houghton what a lovely fella do check out the book the jam the day i was there I've put all the details in the show notes for this podcast. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com is my website. And whilst you're there, you can show your support by heading to my store. We have exclusive official merchandise, including our very own podcast mug. And you can buy a virtual coffee as well. Doing exactly that over the past week. Let's give some of you a shout out. Steve McAllanon, hello to you, who says, that's entertainment, lad. Thanks very much indeed for your virtual coffee. David Cracknell says, if Paul doesn't give you an interview by the end of this year, I'll start a petition to Parliament. What a comprehensive and fascinating archive you have created, though. Still hooked. Cheers, crackers. Well, thank you, David, and much appreciated to you for the coffee and for coming on the podcast as well. Hello to Alex McLaughlin, who said, really enjoyed the Christopher Holland chat. Didn't know much about him other than seeing him playing behind Weller stroke jewels from time to time, but another really interesting guest. Well, cheers, Alex, and thanks to you once again for your virtual coffee. Appreciate it, my friend. Hello also to Ian Hamilton. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hi to Grant. Hello, Grant. Hi to Mark Orwell. Says, keep on keeping on, Dan. You should try and get Danny Baker on. He'll have some terrific Weller stories, I'm sure. He reported on a jam gig once for Enemy, where there was only three blokes and a dog in there. <laughs> I love Danny Baker, so yes, please. Hello, Ian. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hi to Sean Wilson. Thanks to you as well. Cheers for your support. You can get in touch at Pod on Twitter. You can also follow on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Paul Podcast. And whatever you do, make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, Alexa, and more. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.